starting a new series. Timely truths, sobering sayings of Jesus, which is in no way connected to our first uh, saying of Jesus. I mean the sobering part. Because we're going to look at Luke 5, verse 37. And this series is going to be built on these short sayings of Jesus in which he um, draws on kind of everyday sayings. But of course, in their context, they have a much uh, a more powerful, and in the context of his life, and therefore our life in Christ. So I hope you'll enjoy these. And I've got about... I'm, st I'm still building uh, a list, but I've got about 10 that I'm looking at. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll be doing this stuff at Christmas time. But Luke 5.37, have you looked at it? Let me read it. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. This is terribly important. I mean, this is, this is a PSA. This is a public service announcement. If you do put new wine in old wineskins, you will do by pouring new wine into old wineskins irreparable damage to your wineskin and you will lose all of your new wine. So don't do it. Are we clear? If we're clear, I think we're done here. And I just want to mention that out on the patio, there's a table, new wineskins table, in which you can pick up some new wineskins. <laughs> the real issue here is an old wineskin is not fit for new wine. New wine ferments. Just as yeast leavens bread, there are yeasts in new wine and just as yeast leavens rise causes bread to rise and to expand so new wine expands cracking and splitting old wine skins the wine spills to the ground and is lost and the wine skin is cracked and broken and is lost so New wineskin in old wineskins ruins the skins and spills the wine. I think I have made that abundantly clear. But you know, there is something about the fact that new wine and the fermentation of new wine brings to mind the permissive, the persuasive, and the pervasive influence of an enzyme 
And that kind of new energy, new change that new wine represents is what Jesus is and his ministry is. And we see it very clearly because we're, we're really quite in the beginning of Luke 5. And if, we, if you don't see it, I'm, I'm about to show you. Because Jesus, of course, the first uh, couple of chapters are taken up with his birth, the Annunciation, the coming of John Baptist, John the Baptist. But then Jesus submits his life after his, uh, there's a section at the end of chapter 2 on him going to the temple at 12, but after that he is baptized, he is tempted, and then he begins his public ministry and he enters in to the synagogue, and we're told in chapter 4, verse 16, if you just turn back a little bit in your New Testament, he came to Nazareth. Chapter 4, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place. In other words, he selected the Scripture. He found the place where it was written. And this is what Jesus read standing in the synagogue of his own hometown. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to sit at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the synagogue attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were looking at him. And he began to speak to them. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we really begin to walk with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He's beginning to call disciples to follow him. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we find him in Galilee, at the Sea of Galilee, and people are flocking to him because he's been doing healings. He's been, well, he's been living out what Isaiah prophesied and what has been fulfilled in their hearing. What Jesus chose to read and to say to them, this has been fulfilled, is being fulfilled, even now. And so the people are starting to flock to him and they're pressing in on him, we're told, in verse 1 of chapter 5, that they have come to hear the Word of God. I think that is ex expressly beautiful um, because it is 
hear that these people, I mean, think about it. They don't have, they don't have Bibles. They don't have little scrolls. They go to the synagogue where the scrolls are brought out. And when they're brought out, it's quite, quite a celebration. It's very, very special because the people hungered here from God. But now Jesus, in his ministry, they believe God is speaking and acting and present and working through him. That is such a, a precious thing in verse 1 when it says, the people were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. That's bigger than just reciting a verse. That's hearing from God. That's experiencing the presence of God. That's the alert, so to speak, that inaugurates, that begins Jesus' ministry. People recognize God at work in Jesus Christ, and they're pressing in on him. They're coming to him because they're hungry. They're hungry to hear from God that he should act, that he should work in their lives. And this is located in Jesus Christ. They see God at work in him. In verses 8 through 10, as Jesus was at the shore, he, he moves to a place because they're kind of pushing him into the sea, so he finds a couple of small fishing boats and he asks if he can sit in the prow of one of them and push off from the edge and speak to the people from the safety of the water. And it happens to be the, the boat of a, a man named Simon Peter and some of his co-workers, his associates in the fishing business. Peter is not a dumb fisherman. These are not dumb fishermen. I mean, they, they had a business and they had to be competent in all matters of business, and they were. But Jesus asks to sit in that boat and pushes off, and after he's taught the people, he says to Peter, Peter, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? And Peter says, uh, we've been fishing all night. It's morning. I mean, we're, we're, we're packing it in. We were about to call it a day. He says, throw on the other side of the boat. He says, all right, if you say so. I mean, he's heard him speaking. So there's maybe a bit of deference, of some faith starting to, to grow a bit in Peter. Well, they throw their nets, they lower their nets, and they catch a horde of fish. And Peter even has to nod to the others in, in a boat at a distance, they come over, they both fill their boats, they're starting to list. It says they're about to sink from the weight of the hull as they make their way to shore. And then we're told that Peter is so overwhelmed by what has happened because he realizes that this is an act of God. This is an act of a holy man. And he's stunned at what has happened. 
and he falls on his face before Jesus, and he, if you can imagine this happening, to be in the presence of such an experience, and he's, he's so humbled that he falls, and with his face, so to speak, in the ground, he says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Go away. I'm a sinful man. In other words, you're a holy man. You're a righteous man. You're a good man. God is, God is somehow at work in you in ways I've never experienced. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, and you should not be in mine because you're holy. Go away. Jesus goes on to call him and Andrew and Peter and others, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We're told as we go to verses 12 through 16 that in another city, Jesus comes upon a leper who must have been walking or dwelling or living or happened to be moving apart, not near the city because lepers were unclean. We're told in most cases, so we assume here that if you were unclean, and we're told here he's full of leprosy, can you imagine? Isolated. Totally. And if he comes near people, he, have to, he has to announce, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would venture to approach or to touch, certainly. And so we have to imagine that from some distance, he sees Jesus coming, he knows it's Jesus, there's got to be a crowd around him, certainly those first disciples, not the full complement. He says, if you would choose, if you would decide, you can cleanse me. Can you imagine? You can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. I am willing. And you know what he does? He touches him. He didn't have to touch him. And he makes him clean. In verses 17 through 26 of this chapter, Jesus is in a house in Capernaum. The people have just packed him in. And some friends of a man who's a paralytic, he can get there in no way on his own. I mean, these are friends we need because they carry him on a litter, on a cot. And when they arrive, they, they can't even begin to get close to Jesus. But they have this audacious faith. I mean, they've already carried him because they think if anyone can help him, Jesus can. So they go up on the roof and they begin to remove the tiles. 
to disassemble the roof. Can you imagine the debris that's starting to sprinkle, you know, as the roof is being taken apart? And I could assume, I could, you know, what's going on? Knock it off. And that would be my reaction. But no, Jesus is, he is impressed with this demonstration of faith. And they lower him on this cot, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And religious leaders are present at this event because we're told they've come from all up and down Palestine. They've come not only from all places in Galilee, but from the south in Judea, and even from the capital, the holy city itself, Jerusalem. And the religious leaders have come too. And they begin to grumble because Jesus has just done something that only God himself has a right to do, and that is to forgive sins. And Jesus notices they're murmuring. And he knows they're not murmuring good things. So he says, uh, what's the problem? And they said, well, you just claimed the authority of God and forgave his sins. And he said, well, what's easier? To say, take up your mat and walk, or your sins are forgiven. You know, I find this interesting because Jesus saw a deeper need in the paralytic, a need I think that we all have. The leper, Peter, which he recognized in himself, the leper in the manifestation of this disease, that was eating him apart. And now the paralytic, and yet when the religious leaders begin to grumble and murmur about him forgiving sin and the connection of the fact that what Jesus does when he's loving people, when he's forgiving people, or even when we are repenting of sin and drawing near to him and beginning to live by faith, we tend to think of it in these kinds of legalese kinds of terms, you know, but it's really all about wholeness and a connection between the spiritual life and the physical life, between what's inside and what's outside. And a lot of times in our modernist scientific world, we, we think we're kind of compartmentalized and that we can deal with one without dealing with the other. But Jesus demonstrates not only the authority of God, but he validates the power of God when he says, get up and walk. Because you can't prove, I can't prove if I say your sins are forgiven. But if you're a paralytic and I say, stand up and walk, then I've proven that I have the authority to forgive sins. And they're all amazed. And so, as we walk through chapter 5, there are these waves of new insight as we watch Jesus. He's being revealed to us through the very things he does with the people that he cares for. And in layers, it's increasingly profound. And in verses 27 through 39, 
there's a tax collector. His name is Levi. A tax collector works for the Roman government. Taxes are a heavy burden. I know we don't know anything about that. But in those days, taxes were huge. And it was the way of an occupying country, such as the Roman, Romans, to drain, to deplete the resources of a people. Offering in return that they didn't destroy them and reduce them to ashes and rub out their generation or genocide. Levi, he's a Jew. He's working for the enemy, the occupiers, the oppressors. He's hated, but he makes a good wage. And Jesus comes by in his travels. These tables, these booths would be situated at crossroads where you would have trade passing through, and so you would tax things that were passing by. And Jesus passes by, and he says to Levi, who is Matthew, the author of one of our Gospels, he says, follow me. And Levi, not all at once, we know this is shorthand, but we're told he leaves everything, just like Peter left his business to follow Jesus. Levi does too. And then he throws a party, and he invites all of his buddies and friends, his uh, associates, and so we know what kind of people they are. In fact, the religious leaders observed Jesus enjoying this meal with these people, which was a sign of deep fellowship, real fellowship. To sit and eat is a very intimate thing in that culture. In fact, we are sadly moving away from the practice of eating together as families, eating with neighbors, eating with people, it's the way we can get to know one another, even people in our neighborhood that we don't know, that are very different from us. We can find common ground, and it can become the foundation of influence. The influence of Christ in your life can pass and become real and meaningful and amazing to others by sharing a meal where you really get to know one another see their heart. A Pharisee, a religious leader, a scribe, a lawyer of the law would never associate with people over a food, sharing a common bowl, reaching in to the same foods, sitting at the common table, washing with the common water, drinking from common pitcher and cup. And Jesus did that freely with people that were hands off, outer limits. So no wonder the religious leaders grumble. The point that we 
is made when we think of his later saying to the religious leaders, don't put new wine into old wineskins because the new wine you see will burst the old wineskins and not only will the skins be lost, but the wine will be lost because Jesus is the new wine. The new work of God through Jesus is the new wine. It's influential. It's a power that it's at work. And if it is suppressed and pushed down and squeezed into something that is going to burst because it can't contain the newness of what God's doing. The wine is spilt and of no use at all. Make room for God's meaningful, marvelous change that comes about through his new wine. God's love is new wine. Now, the word love isn't used here at all, but God's love is new wine. He doesn't have to touch the leper. That's not just duty. That's love. As the debris floats from the house, <laughs> sprinkling their heads, he's more interested in their faith. That's love. Luke 5, in fact, we see things aren't the way they ought to be. That's because it's new wine. But we know that the way people think it ought to be is represented by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And that's the old wineskins, the way it ought to be, or the way it used to be, or the good old days. God's gospel, God's new wine, is not fit into old wineskins. In verses 30 through 32, the religious leaders say, why do you associate with the wrong kind of people? Especially in verse 30. And he replies, a physician is not needed by the healthy, but I am like a physician to the sick, to those who are sinners. I'm here to heal. I'm here to, notice he says, bring them to repentance. Love is at work before repentance. Love is an agent in repentance. Love is a path to influence, to change, to meaningful, marvelous change when the trajectory and the purpose is the redemptive work of God. It's not in our human strength, our, our human machinations and strategies. They're inspired by, they're sparked by the vision, the imagination that we're given through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ himself of what can happen. It's always lifting our eyes higher to greater and bigger things that are possible where God is at work. And that comes through faith. 
That faith, it's the germinating catalyst that creates the fermentation of Jesus Christ that's all about the new wine. I know that's kind of literalizing it, but that's where we fit into this. That's how we become a part of this new wine. The reality is the grape, but faith is our trust in, our confidence in, even taking risks to step out in faith. This love of Jesus Christ, I know the word doesn't occur, but it's love, love, and love. In fact, in his teaching, in the chapter 6, this is chapter 5, in the next chapter, as he's sorting out and calling people by name to follow him, and people are flocking to him, he says, look, uh, do you know what it means to be my disciple? He says in verse 27, "If you've heard it said, but I say to you, that's new wine. And you don't put it in old wineskins. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Have you tried to love your enemy? Did you try like once? Or maybe you just thought about it for a while. And I know how this works. You see, faith in Jesus Christ means that when I recognize my enemy, I'm supposed to love. In fact, for Christians, there are no such things as enemies because we're supposed to love everybody. So this is going to be a constant challenge. I mean constant. It's going to be a challenge at home. It's going to be a challenge at church. It's going to be a challenge on the road. It's going to be a challenge in the market. It's going to be a challenge in school. It's going to be a a challenge with the people that you have pledged to love. Maybe your greatest challenge. And here's what happens. You see, this is the old wineskin, the old guy, the old John. Where did the old John come from? Well, I know biologically my parents, but they also influenced me. Some, some really strongly rooted beliefs were given to me by my parents. And then new beliefs were brought to me by schoolmates and through years of school and teachers and television, and in society. Who, who wins in society? Who's loved in society? Who's lifted up? Who's a success? Who's a star? Who's a celebrity? Who do we worship in society? All those things are part of the old John. And then Jesus says, love your enemy. And right then and there, I'm tempted to put the new wine into an old wineskin because that's what's available. The old wineskin of everything I've heard about how I should live and how I should look at other people and and how I should conduct my life and if I want to be a success or I want to be liked or be whatever. It's all been fed to me, but now Jesus is saying, love your enemy. 
And that's risky because it goes against the grain of everything I've been taught. In fact, you could get on Facebook today or Twitter or any other platform and you'll see what we're up against. They want to define success and the perfect family and the worthy and good and and people will, in the memes you read, you know, don't put up with those. Get rid of the bad people in your life. Get rid of the Get rid of all people in your life, is what they're saying. Don't put up with any of it. You deserve better. Treat yourself with a kit glove. Love on yourself. Love, 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 love on yourself. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Because he knows that everybody becomes an enemy when it comes to loving someone other than yourself. And what happens when we don't follow through on these things? If we fall back on all this other stuff, this old wine bag crap, and we draw on that for the truth, for the direction in our lives, what's that do to the gospel? What does it do to the truth of God when you don't test it and find it true? What happens to your soul? Does it not start to shrink a little? Does your faith seem to give up and quit? Jesus, come around when you're ready to do a miracle because I'm too lazy to trust in you, too lazy to get off my duff and believe in you. Your gospel isn't relevant because I'm waiting for death for it to kick in. I've given up on my marriage. I've given up on my neighbors. I've given up on all these different people. I've become bitter because my old, my old wineskin holds all the wine in my life. And Jesus says, what I am and what I bring and what you're supposed to be drinking is new wine and you don't put it in old wineskins. Because if you do, they will crack and they will break, and the wine will spill to the ground and be lost. Jesus, his love is new wine. His forgiveness is new wine. In Verses 33 through 39, they complain, why do your disciples eat and drink instead of fast and pray? Jesus responds in three quick ways. You know, it's really stupid to ask the guests at a wedding to fast. Can you imagine being the maid of honor or the best man and asking your bridesmaids or your best men to fast? This is not the occasion, Jesus says. In other words, what God is doing in Christ is a whole new day. It's, it's a festive experience. It is a marvelous thing. It's meaningful. It's marvelous. It's full of change and inspiration and excitement. And we got to get on board. It's not the time to fast. Of course, he's also alluding to his life and his death. That's his reference to being taken away. 
but he's bringing in his own reality, the ministry of his presence and reality, the sense of the messianic banquet, which is looking forward, looking forward throughout Scripture. And he says, it's a part of what God's doing right now. But I want you to know, you can't use the fact that Jesus isn't here as an excuse. Because what did he do but pour out his Holy Spirit on his church? He told his own disciples, it's better for the Spirit to be in you than me beside you. That is, the Spirit in you is the power of what God's doing in the gospel right now. It's me in you at work in your lives. So he says, you don't put new cloth on an old garment to patch it, and you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Look, old wineskins can represent routine, especially the status quo. I like routine. I don't know if you do. And you may not know this about me, so I'm, I'm telling you something. But when I go to a restaurant, if I've been to that restaurant before, I order the same thing every time. I'm a creature of habit. I would probably be OCD without Jesus. But don't confuse routine with the status quo. Routine can be good. I mean, you can, you can tend to be, depend on someone who is a person of routine. I know in my life, I'm fiercely loyal. I really am. I'm a fiercely loyal person. So that's a good side. The negative side is where you settle in and you're not open to any change. And you've You've become, so to speak, hardened in the status quo. I bet, I, this is just a hunch, but, you know, I'm really open to new things. I love new things. I'm excited for what God is doing in grace. I'm excited for what God is doing in your lives and in your lives. I'm looking at you. You are the future. How many of you are 18? Let me see your hands. A few 18-year-olds. I made my decision to follow Christ when I was 18, and I've never left that. The decision, I got married at 20, and I've never left that. You make decisions that will shape the rest of your life at 17, 18, 19, the decisions you are making today will have an influence on the decisions you will make a, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. God is at work in your life. He is at work. I hope that you are open. I hope you're making space in your heart and in your mind for what God is seeking to do in you because it will shape your life. And if you're making the right decisions, well, you'll end up like me, which I think is the luckiest thing on earth. You may not agree, but you could probably say, well, it's good you think that about yourself. Well, I do. I am so grateful 
for what God has done in my life. I never thought I would be talking in front of people because I was so shy and felt so inferior. But when you are passionate about something that you have convictions about that have shaped your life, that continue to influence you every moment of every day because you, you find yourself when you're walking by faith, you're willing to take risks, you're willing to break the hard pan, the hard clay of the status quo. You're open to God at working in your life. You expect him to show up in the next phone call, in the next conversation, in the person on the street or in the store or on the football field or in whatever sport or dance or whatever you're involved in. God is everywhere, and he has chosen you. What are you doing with it? Don't put it in old wineskins. They crack and your wine spills to the ground. And you know what that looks like? That looks like you rationalizing yourself out of the gospel. You've lost sight of faith in the reality of what God can do through you in your stubborn relationships, in your disappointments, in your frustrations. You've given up and you're waiting for that other person to get on the stick because you've given up because you don't think God can use you, because you don't think you have anything to learn. You've got all of the reasons for why you have quit on life, quit on your husband or wife, quit on your kids, quit on your parents, quit on that new kid at school, quit on that teacher you don't like, quit on someone else or something else. I'm passionate about this because God wants us in the fight with his spirit, with his love, with his forgiveness, with his identity. Or else we ought to just quit playing this game. I've been saying that to myself for over 44 years in the ministry. John, if you're tired... If you don't believe this anymore, then you just best go home and call it a day. Don't poison other people with your half-baked spirituality. I'm not talking about perfection. Jesus wasn't either. He reached out and touched those people. Why? so they could have a kind of spiritual transaction and put their faith in the bank for the next 50 years? No, he wanted them to come alive. God's love is new wine. It brings change. God's forgiveness is new wine. It brings change. God's identity in Jesus Christ is new wine. It brings change. And you and I are being called to that change. Am I perfect? I'm not preaching down to you. When I start raising my voice and speaking with such conviction, I'm preaching to myself. But what, why did Jesus die on the cross? But so that you would know forgiveness when you have shortcomings and failings. You get up on your feet and you get back in the fight. And you keep going after it. And you keep loving and loving and loving. You don't think it once in your head and say, oh, that would never work. I'm going back to sleep. That's not the spirit. 
I've often thought the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, that would make a great leader, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't that make a great president? Wouldn't that make a great principal at your school? Wouldn't that make a great husband? Wouldn't that make a great wife? Wouldn't that make a great friend? Wouldn't that make a great teacher? Wouldn't that make a great church? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Man, I, I, I would praise a person like that. I would like a person like that. I would follow a person like that. I would trust a person like that. I would marry a person like that. I'd be proud of kids like that. You see what I'm saying? Will you stand? Jesus looked down on Peter as he said, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He called him to his side. They walked together in life the next three years. A man full of disease shouted over to Jesus, if you touch me, if you, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. Jesus was not only willing, he touched him. Jesus responds so favorably to audacious faith that instead of just saying, rise and walk, he says, your sins are forgiven. He calls a man who's seen by everybody as a traitor to everything they hold dear. And I'll tell you, in that society, they held everything they did dear because everything dear was of God and a part of his history and his tradition and his work in his people. And Jesus said, follow me. This morning, do you think you're beyond Jesus? His touch, his love, his forgiveness, his new identity. I hope you'll respond to him. Because any, anything you see in me is just me trying to do the same thing. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for your Holy Spirit, for the truth of the gospel for wonderful memories of your work in our lives, but creating a passion today in us for making new memories as we walk in faith with you. We pray this with praise on our lips and thanks for your gospel, for your Son and your Spirit. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, God bless you.